Bibles, if you would please, and turn me to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 6 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We're going to read, uh, as we usually do, we're going to begin by reading from the scriptures. I can't find Ecclesiastes. It's a very small book. It's right after the book of Proverbs. And if you're in the big book of Psalms or Proverbs, turn right. If you're in the book of Isaiah or Jeremiah, turn left, and you'll come to Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse uh, 10. We're going to read from Ecclesiastes 6.10 through chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, Of course, the big numbers in the Bible, the first numbers, and when it's listed is the chapter. You'll find those on the page, and then the little numbers are the verse numbers. So chapter 6, verse 10. Ecclesiastes. Whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity is has been known No one can contend with someone who is stronger. The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they're gone? A good name is better than fine perfume and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion, your translation might say oppression. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of the matter is better than its beginning and patience, patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit. For anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? It's not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. So when we read this section of scripture, we have an opportunity to listen in to a very wise man, a man of of great faith, as he wrestles in words, putting together two distinct truths. He's trying to put together the sovereignty of God and uh, the fact that we live in a painful, mysterious, broken world. You should not be surprised that the teacher, the the author of Ecclesiastes, the teacher that he deals with this subject, how to put these two uh, things together. He's touched on both of them already. Uh, Perhaps um, uh, you also see here he's asking a lot of questions that those of us who claim to believe ask. At the heart of this passage is, is one basic question. What does it mean to walk by faith in a world that is ruled by the sovereign God but is so chaotic? 
if God is sovereign, and he is, this world, the world he rules is chaotic. How do we put these two things together? And most of the time, we find ourselves, when we think about those two realities, sovereign God, chaotic world, most of the time we find ourselves swinging back and forth as we think about these things. Sometimes, the sovereignty of God is a great source of comfort to us. We, we revel in it. We love it. In, in a few minutes at the end of the service, we're going to sing, uh, Whate'er my God ordains is right. Whate'er my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whate'er he doth and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him I leave it all. We sing that song fervently at times. Yes, I, I believe this is true. I believe that whatever God does, it's right. And my road is very dark right now. But I, I trust Him. Sometimes the sovereignty of God is a great comfort to us. We sing songs like that joyfully. Sometimes, though, the sovereignty of God provokes us. It pains us. Do you think, as we read these verses, do you think that the teacher in Ecclesiastes, is he happy about the sovereignty of God or is he perplexed by it? Is he celebrating it or is he pushing back? Is it, is it more in this, this chapter, these verses, is it more of a comfort to him or is it, is it caustic to him? Even people of faith can be troubled. Um, over the years, I've read a lot of poems, too, by Joe Bailey. I like the poems of Joe Bailey. He writes well about his joys and sorrows. Here's some words that he wrote when his 18-year-old son died. This is the third uh, son that the Baileys buried. And uh, he wrote this poem. He was thinking about Passover. He was thinking about Jesus being anointed by uh, Mary before he uh, was crucified. And he laments. Listen to this lament about the death of his son. What waste, Lord, here outpoured is treasure great beyond my mind to think. For years until this midnight it was safe, contained, awaiting careful use. Now broken, wasted, lost. The world is poor, so poor it needs each drop of such a treasure. This treasure spent well might feed a multitude for all their days and then yield more. The world is poor. It's poorer now. The treasure's lost. I breathe its lingering fragrance. Soon that, even that will cease. What purpose served? The act is void of reason, sense. Lord, madmen do such deeds, not sane. He's absolutely convinced, Joe Bailey is, that God is sovereign and it's bothering him. How, how, God, if you're sovereign, sometimes the things that happen in this world that you reign are crazy. They're insane. So sometimes the sovereignty of God comforts us. Sometimes it, it plagues us. Sometimes we're so overwhelmed by the chaos that we just give up. There has to be some other way out. God, any God by such a title, would not allow these things to happen. If there is a God, he must not reign. Chaos overwhelms your soul. You're, you're tempted to quit. What does it mean to walk by faith in a chaotic world that's ruled by a sovereign God? That's the question. And to get at that answer this morning, I want to look at three things in the text First, we're going to talk about what we don't know. Second, we're going to talk about what we pursue. And third, we're going to talk about what we anticipate. What we don't know, and here we have to wrestle with what the teacher says about God's sovereignty. 
what we pursue. What do we do in the meantime? We don't know what's happening. We still have to live in this chaotic world. What do we look for now in the meantime? We're going to look at most of the Proverbs in chapter 7. And then then the third thing, what do we anticipate? And for that, we're going to leave the boundaries of Ecclesiastes 7 for just a few minutes. Let's start with what we don't know. Verse 12, very explicitly of chapter 6, verse 12 says, Who knows what is good for a person in life? what, What don't we know? We don't know what's good. We don't know what's best. We don't know what's good for us. We don't know what's best for us. We don't truly know what in the long run will bring us wholeness and peace. We don't know what's good for us. Uh, Let's unpack that a little bit. So the bookends of this passage, both the beginning and the end, deal with the sovereign majesty of God. Let's start at the end, all right, at verse 13 of chapter 7. Consider what God has done. Think about it. Think about what God has done for a moment. Think about the fact, verse 13 says, that God has made some things crooked and you can't straighten them. This is the second time that the teacher has asked this question. He also asked this question in chapter 1, verse 15. What is crooked? Uh, Who can straighten what has been made, what he has made crooked? There is a ruler in the universe. It's not you. And you don't have a vote in what he does. And by his sovereign decree, some things that you think ought to be straight are crooked. And you can't change it. And that's frustrating. There's a song you've probably heard before. It was made famous by the uh, musical uh, The Man of La Mancha. It's been recorded dozens of times. If, if I were to sing it, which I will spare us all, um, you would recognize it. It's called uh, The Impossible Dream. Here's some lines. Don Quixote has this, this is his goal. This is the way he lives. To dream the impossible dream, to fight the unbeatable foe, to bear with unbearable sorrow, to run where the brave will not go, dare not go, to right the unrightable wrong. Sounds very noble. Let's add a line to it. How about to straighten the unstraightenable crooked line? Robert Kennedy loved this song. A lot of politicians love this song. They love this song talking about uh, righting the unrightable wrong. They make promises to that effect. I promise, I promise that if you elect me, I will solve this problem that no one in 160 years has been able to solve, but I will solve it if you vote for me. I will right the unrightable wrong. I think it was John Dickerson who I first heard it from, the CBS News reporter. He said, you know, sometimes presidential success consists in just sitting in that office for eight years and not making things worse. Sometimes that's a great achievement. I I didn't mess it up. It's not any worse than it was eight years ago. Uh, To expand upon on this, there are crooked things that you can't make straight. The teacher writes about economics, not macroeconomics, microeconomics, your economics, verse 14. There are good times. There are good times, there's bad times. God made them both. For his purposes, he is sovereign master of them all. There's good times, there's bad times. There's fat times, there's lean times. There's lavish Christmases and uh, Valentine's Days at McDonald's. Both. Both happen. God's sovereign. You're not. Now, look back here at the beginning of this uh, passage, chapter 6, verse 10. And he's talking about God's sovereignty, sovereignty at the end, sovereignty at the beginning. Verse 10, whatever exists has already been named. 
Naming in the Bible is a way of describing power. It's a, it's a uh, authority. Naming is the ability to identify someone, to characterize something. It's an authoritative stance. Psalm 147:14. I think I wrote it down. Here's the greatness of God. How do we know God is great? Because he determines the number of the stars and he calls each of them by name. When God called the world into existence, he named things. And then when he appointed Adam as his representative on earth, he told Adam to name things. Naming is an act of authority. God's naming power includes human beings. The teacher says, God names things, he's got the names, and, verse 10, he knows humanity's name too. It's another way of saying, God numbers everything and he's got your number. He's, he's the sovereign majesty. Uh, listen to the New English translation, how it translates verse 10. It's a little bit of a paraphrase, but it's communicating well what the verse says. It says, Whatever has happened was foreordained, and what happens to a person was also foreknown. You may not like that. You may want to try. Verse 10, he says, and you can't argue with God about it. No one can contend with someone. The someone is God himself. No one can contend with someone who's stronger. Picture it here. The teacher is in class and he's waxing eloquent about God's sovereignty and he's talking about the extent of it and the wonder of it and the majesty of it and, and, and sometimes the mystery of it. And he's talking, talking about God's great sovereignty. He's painting this beautiful picture and that kid raises his hand in class. You know that kid who always raises his hand in class? That kid, that kid raises his hand. And the teacher looks at him and says, put your hand down, there's no questions. You can't ask questions. You can't argue about this. There is nothing you can do to undo this. No one can contend with God. What is has been named. Humanity has been completely known. He is the sovereign master. And then the teacher makes this very clear statement. Who knows what's good? Well, I kind of think that I do. I kind of think that if I had the same power that God does... I think that I could fix a few things. There's a few things that I would like to fix. If, if I had the sovereign majesty that God does, there wouldn't be as many bad times, at least for me. Um, and I'd fix some of your problems too, actually. I mean, I'm not a selfish person. Problem is, probably, for every problem I would fix, I'd probably create 75 more I don't have the wisdom to put this all together the way God does. You can't argue with him. Who knows what is good for a person in life? God does and you don't. And he has not chosen to tell us that what, where that good path lies. Probably if God laid out for you everything that was going to happen in your life and he told it to you, uh, what would be best for you and what would be good, would that provoke in you more arguments or less? Oof. Do you remember taking your children to get shots? I remember being in the pediatrician's office when it's time for shots. I got my flu shot about a month ago. Um... And I remember being in the children's office, uh, pediatrician's office, laying out the babies, and the nurse came at them with the needle, and bam, into the leg they go, and it hurts, they scream. And my flu shot hurt for a couple of days. Um, believe it or not, that's good. It's good. It, you, it's a lot better than getting the flu. Oof. Here's your problem. 
Here's my problem. You don't know what's good in this chaotic world. But God does, and he doesn't tell us. And that can be frustrating. It can be overwhelming. It can be painful and confusing and discouraging. You can see that pain all over the Bible. People trying to put this together. People of faith trying to put this together. How many of the Psalms contain laments of of people that are trying to figure this thing out? The sovereignty of God and the chaotic world. Think about this. I mean, this is amazing. This is God's book. It's from him. It's his word for us. And in it, he gives us the words to use when we're confused by what he's doing. He he gives us the vocabulary that we're supposed to use when, when we don't understand what he's about. When we have questions and problems and doubts. He gives us the words to use. Have you been to a card store lately to buy a card? Everybody has to at some point in time, right? Some, it's an anniversary, it's a birthday, it's Christmas, Thanksgiving, whatever. You, you go and you, you buy cards. Someone, somewhere, in some creative room has put together these words that you're supposed to use. And you go into the card store and you pick up the cards and, and, and you start reading them. And uh, you looked, which one of these conveys the way that I feel? Everybody picks out cards differently. Some of you like the long, flourishing uh, poems. You like those because that really contains what you, what you feel. Some of you go for simpler, easier sentiments. I remember going in on anniversaries, near anniversaries that we've had, where our marriage has been rougher than easier. It's hard to find a good, happy anniversary card that says, I love you, I don't like you very much, but I love you. <laughs> it's hard to find those. You've got to find those cards with that sentiment in it. Someone somewhere at Hallmark has put together these cards so that you can have words to express on these special holidays. God has given us a book that we can use. He gives us the words to say to pour out our laments, the things that are troubling us. Uh, here's what God himself suggests for suffering people. This is one of the, the chief ways that we're called to help each other as followers of Jesus. We, we help one another hold on when we don't understand. God is certain that you will need help holding on, so he has given you words to speak in the Bible, and he has given you people to carry you into the church. A couple of months ago, I watched a movie called Poseidon. It's, it was 10 or 12 years old, I think. And the, the movie itself was 10 years old, and it was based on a movie from 40 years ago called The Poseidon Adventure. The plot of both of them is the same. It's a cruise ship. People are out on a cruise celebrating New Year's Eve, and a rogue wave comes and turns the cruise ship upside down. Disaster. People die. They drown immediately. Not everybody The Poseidon, the one that I saw, follows a group of people, I think the plots are the same, follows a group of people as they try to climb, follow me here, into the bottom of the boat to get to the top of the ocean. And and scene after scene, they come upon some tread, what what are we going to do to solve this problem? And they solve it and they move on and then then they're chased higher up and they have to solve some other problem. They're higher up, they chase... They solve all these problems. Well, they get to this one floor, uh, and, and there's fire, fire coming, the fire blocking all the other ways out, water rising. The only opportunity they have, the only chance they have to go down and up in the ship is to climb through an air conditioning vent. So they take the, they take the cover off, and, or the ducks, and they, 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 this is the only way through. And I was sitting in my living room, and I thought, if that is the only way out, I'm going to drown. I don't want to crawl through that tiny space. 
no way. But I wonder what I would do if I was actually there and there were other people around me to say to me, look, man, this is the only way out. You, you, you go, go. You, you won't go into that duct alone. I'll go with you. You won't be alone. Can you crawl in then? God has given you people in the body of Christ to encourage you and push you forward into very tight spaces where his sovereign mastery might lead you. You need encouragement like that. You need encouragement like that because you don't always know what is good in this chaotic world. That's what you don't know. Now, let's move on here and let's talk about what we pursue. What do we pursue? Uh, we are, as it were, walking in the dark. We, as, as it were, Ecclesiastes says, we're walking in the dark of the, of the world that God has made. We don't know what's good. But chapter 7 is a series of Proverbs, um, and the key phrase in all of these Proverbs is, is better than, better than. This is better than that. Literally, the text says, and this is not poor grammar in Hebrew, it, it is poor grammar in English, and I'm going to use it, and some of it's going to drive you nuts. The text literally says, it's more good than, or it's gooder. This is gooder than that. In the midst of the chaos, when you don't know what's good, let me tell you something that's gooder than other things. There are gooder things that you can choose. Um, here's what people of faith look for when they're walking in the dark. Four things. Number one, we look for reminders of the brevity of life. We look for and we value reminders of the brevity of life. This is the first four verses of uh, uh, chapter 7. I read this passage often at funerals. It's a good reminder. Verse 2, look what it says. It is better or it is gooder to go to a house of mourning than to, house, than to a house of feasting. You're better off going to a funeral than you are to a feast. That's surprising. Remember the section that we read just last week? So last week you read this section. The teacher writes a lot about joy. The teacher really wants you to find joy in life. He wants you to find joy in what you eat and what you drink and your work, your daily toil. The, the teacher is serious about joy. But here he's going to say to us that there is a connection between the joy that you experience in life as it is and your knowledge of the certain fact that you are going to die someday. Enjoying life today, you'll be better at it if you know that death is inevitable. Now, how can that be? How, how can that work? Look, verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Now, that's strange. Why is that? How can that be? Maybe, maybe he's thinking like in chapter 4. Chapter 4, he writes at the beginning about how life is really hard. There's a lot of suffering in life. And when you die, your suffering is over. Those poor babies in the nursery... What do they have to look forward to? A long life of suffering. Right? Maybe that's what he's talking about. Or perhaps he's talking about the fact that when you are born, your life is all potential, all promise, no reputation. But when you die, your story will be fulfillment, not promise. Actual, not potential. Think about this with me for a minute here. There are a few times in your life when you, you will be up front at the church. Some of you I know are up here regularly because you read or pray or lead singing or play an instrument. 
But a couple of times in your life, you will be up front and you will be the focus of the meeting. Probably the first time was your baby dedication. Somebody carried you down here and the church gathers together to pray for you. And, and, and the focus, of course, is on your future. We pray about our hopes for you before God. We pray that you'll believe in Jesus, that, that you'll follow God faithfully, that you'll lead the family that God might give you well, that you'll work hard, that you'll participate in the life of a local church. It's all promise. It's all future. That's what we think about when you're up here as a baby. You'll probably be at the front of a church when you get married. You'll stand here and you'll make promises. Again, it's all about the future. Uh, You'll be making promises about what you're going to do for the future. And at every wedding I do, I always say the same thing. I say, your 50th wedding anniversary will be, and I give this date, it sounds impossibly far in the future, 2069. And the people who are in the room who haven't heard me do a wedding before will go, woo! Because it's future. And I want you to think about the future. Lifelong promises. This wedding you're here at the front is about the future. Someday you'll be at the front of the church in a box. You were carried down when you were a baby. You were escorted down when you were a bride. You're going to be rolled down, carried down in a box someday. And at that moment there will be no future for you on earth. Everything will be past. No potential, no promises. And we'll be thinking, did God answer the prayers we prayed when that little baby, when that person was a little baby up at the front of the church? Did they fulfill the promises that they made when they stood here in a tuxedo and a wedding gown? There's not really much to say about a baby. I mean, they're cute, but they're all cute. They're all future potential, though. But at a funeral, people can talk about great specifics about who you are, who you were. She cared for me. She, there was a period of my life when I was so discouraged, and she wrote notes, and she called me, and she brought me food. Couldn't feed myself, but she, she brought me the food to help me, encourage me. She was there for me, this dear woman in this box. Or, he was my dad, and like every dad, he told terrible jokes, and no one laughed at him except him. But on the inside, I was laughing, and I was glad that he was my dad, because he helped us make it through difficult times. It's all reflection. It's all reputation. It's not potential at that point in time. You, someday, you, your body is going to be up front here in a box. And there's going to be nothing left but memories. And what people say on that day will be the product of the choices that you make today. The choices that you make today are are creating what they will say on that day when you're up here in a box. Look at verse 3. It says, A sad face is good for the heart. How can that be? That's strange, isn't it? It reminds me a little bit of what Jesus said. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Are you familiar with the work that God does in a life through sorrow? In 1991, uh, it was the fall, Gerald Sitzer was driving in a rural Idaho uh, road. 
He had with him his wife, his mother-in-law, and four children. And a drunk driver plowed into his car. His wife, his mother-in-law, and his four-year-old daughter all died in the crash. She was left with three children. He wrote a book about his grief. The book's called The Grace Disguised. The book came out. And then eight years later, he wrote a little bit more in a second edition of the book that came out. And he said that his rawness, I'm quoting, his rawness and utter bewilderment have given, me, have given way to contentment and deep gratitude. As strange as it might sound, I wish that every man could experience what I have, though without the acute suffering. David Gibson reflects on this. Listen to what he says. People who survive catastrophic loss often say that they survived by coming to see in time that they somehow had to take the loss into themselves and allow it to enlarge their heart so that their capacity to live well and to enjoy simple things and to know God intimately increased in a way they never thought possible. It is as if God somehow stretches a person to the breaking point and then she discovers that because she has been stretched, there is now room in her heart and mind for God and for life and for others that was not there before. Gerald Sitzer even writes of the sickness of soul that can only be healed through suffering. Death has the capacity to teach us things about love and joy that we could only learn because of death but it does not mean that the experience of learning them is lovely or joyful. You don't know what's good in this life. But what is better is learning about the joy of life, the brevity of life as we see it in the face of death. Now here's something else that's better in the text. We'll pick up the pace a little bit. The second thing that's better is the rebuke of the wise. The rebuke of the wise. The brevity of life, the rebuke of the wise. That's in verses 5 and 6. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Um, The teacher is not opposed to singing. He's not opposed to laughter. He's opposed to singing and laughter that are distractions from actual substantive thinking and reflection. Uh, Here's something to seek out, to value in the midst of chaos, a wise rebuke. Tell me, tell me. Tell me, wise friends, in the midst of chaos, what I need to learn, how I can grow. Now, oddly, verse 7 says that wisdom isn't everything. Do you remember how I told you that Ecclesiastes is the book of exceptions? So Ecclesiastes is all the exceptions of the book of Proverbs. Well, here Ecclesiastes has an exception to himself. This is a very frustrating book. Here's, um, see, sometimes, verse 7, so you should listen to wise people, that you need the rebuke of wise people, but sometimes, verse 7, here, let me know the secret, sometimes wisdom gets ruined, and it gets ruined by either extortion or oppression, we're not sure which. So, you need a wise rebuke, but sometimes, sometimes, even wise people are corrupted into foolishness. This book about the frustrating world is sometimes frustrating. So what else is good? What else is good? The rebuke of the wise, lessons about the brevity of life. What else is good? You need a long-term perspective. That's something else that's good. A long-term perspective. That's in verses 8 through 10. He writes about it in three, uh, three ways. The end of a matter is better than the beginning. Just, just like your life, look at the results, not the promises. The end is better than the beginning. Without that long-term look, verse 9, you will become quickly angry. 
Sometimes things don't work out immediately. But if you're hot all the time, you're a fool. Some things, they take a while to work out. You need a long-term perspective. Verse 10 is about nostalgia. This is a twisted form of the long-term perspective. It's my favorite proverb in all of Ecclesiastes. It should be the motto of every Baptist congregational meeting. It's about the good old days, isn't it? Don't long for the good old days. Don't say, why were the good old days better than these? They weren't as good as you remember. That's actually probably a, a, a mercy of the distance of time. Over time, the sharpness of the pain of the moment eases. Think about it here. You forget about or you start to forget about all the terrible sleepless nights you had with a newborn baby so you actually contemplate having another one. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? Parenting erases your brain cells and you begin to think about the good old days as if they actually existed. The good old days when life was easier, but it wasn't easier. Here's another better thing to, to pursue when hit with the chaos of life. You don't know the whole, whole picture, but here's something you can pursue. You can pursue life-preserving life wisdom. Life-preserving wisdom. Notice uh, how in uh, verses 11 and 12, he compares wisdom and money. Both of them are a shelter. Wisdom is a shelter. Money is a shelter. They will both protect you uh, under certain circumstances. But, but, only wisdom will actually preserve. So if you have a choice, take wisdom, not wealth. Here's what faith pursues during dark days. What to go after when the chaos of the world gives you a walloping. Spend time acquiring a heart and mind that can be cultivated, that can only be cultivated in the chaos. How many years have I said that I don't know? But on New Year's Eve weekend, I say, these poinsettias, we want you to take them home. And what do I say? If you bring it back at Easter, still blooming, we'll give you a prize. And it happens. Happens uh, a good bit. Actually, one year, somebody brought me back a poinsettia from the previous year on Christmas Eve. It was a sad-looking little thing. So, but they'd kept it alive. Now, do you know how to actually keep a poinsettia alive? You've ever read about this? You can keep your poinsettias. Did you know that? So you, uh, I, I, I've never gotten very far in the directions to figure it out, but it involves cutting them back, and then you have to put them in a cool, dark space, no more than 64 degrees Fahrenheit for no more than 148, I don't know what. And um, then you bring them out again into the light, and with proper care and light and feeding, your poinsettia will bloom again. I read those instructions and I think to myself, I could just go get another one, right? I don't have the patience for this. I don't have the skill for this. But God does. God sometimes puts his people into cool, dark places. And it doesn't look like anything is happening at all. It feels fruitless and it feels lonely, but he works there too. If that's where you are, here's what you need to prepare for the next season. Which one of these four do you need to cultivate the most in your life? Do you need wisdom? Do you need to back off some because you're so sharp and you're so angry all the time and you just need to back off a little bit in this cool, dark place that God has put you for a while? Do you need a reminder about the brevity of life and the nature of changing seasons? Maybe you shouldn't be so angry during this period of time because it will change. It will change. 
Maybe this is a season where God has opened up your ears so you can hear the wise rebuke of a friend. Which of these do you need? Now, I want to finish this morning by by leaving here and going to the New Testament. You know as the Bible unfolds that the story gets fuller and richer and deeper. Not, Not contradictory. The message doesn't change, but it deepens and develops. In some ways, you could talk about it like this. In the Old Testament, we have revelation from God, and it's black and white. But in the New Testament, we get full color, full technicolor color revelation from God. That's one way you maybe could could explain it. Let's finish by remembering this morning what we anticipate. If a teacher is anxious to have you sit under the sovereignty of God, now's the time for us to ask ourselves. He wants you to be patient under the sovereignty of God. As the rest of the story, we who have the rest of the story, don't we have more reasons to sit carefully under the patience of God, the sovereignty of God? I mean, the teacher had what he had, and he said, God is sovereign, and, and, and wait. And don't we have more reasons to wait in the New Testament? Is it too simple for me to draw a line from what the teacher says in verse 12 to the most well-known verse in Romans 8? Is that too simple? Who knows what's good for a person in this life? What God does, and do you know how God works? He works out all things in the lives of his people, all things in the lives of his people for that good. Again, I, I confess with the teacher, I don't know what's good. I don't know what's good, but God does, and he works to bring that good about in every circumstance of my life. That's the certainty. The uncertainty is the path that he's going to take to get me there, but the certainty is not about the destination. Does that give you more reason to sit under the sovereign majesty of God? After all, this sovereign God, Paul tells us also in Romans 8, is for us. He's not against us. The chief guarantee of that is a comparison that he makes in Romans 8.32, which is a verse that you ought to know and you ought to think about a lot. Look at what Romans 8.32 says. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will you not also along with him graciously give us all things? The greatest need that you have in your life, the greatest problem that you have in all of the world is how we human beings can possibly face the wrath of the one true holy God. What can we do to escape his righteous judgment? We're all guilty before him, guilty of cosmic treason. We have unmasked as a society and individuals, personally as individuals. We've turned from him to our own ways. We've broken his rules. We've flouted his authority. We've rejected his person because God is a good God. He's going to fix what we have broken. He's going to avenge the wrongs that we have done. The problem is, I'm one of those wrongdoers. The greatest threat in all the world to every single person in this room. It's not some foreign invasion. It's not some political party. The greatest threat is not some dread disease. The greatest threat facing every person in this room is the wrath of God. The threat is so great that there can only be one solution. The gift of God's Son who was not spared, Paul says. He was not spared He was given up by the Father in this great exchange. The Son bore the wrath of the Father in my place for me, Paul says, so that whoever turns and trusts in him will find not wrath but forgiveness, mercy, 
mercy. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. Now follow the logic here. Follow the logic. Since the Father has given us the Son in this way, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? Everything else is peanuts in comparison to what God has already given you. If you've trusted the Father to forgive you for the sake of the Son, how else do the rest of your worries compare? There's no chaos that's so great as the chaos of God's wrath. And it was taken by the Son. If you can trust Him for eternity, you can trust Him for today. Romans 8, I think, teaches us to change the imagery of Ecclesiastes 6 and 7. So, in Ecclesiastes 6, we are walking in the dark because God is the sovereign master and here we go, we're walking along and it's dark and, and sometimes the path is crooked we're not sure where we're going. Very dark. There's good things for you. There's gooder things that you could choose. It's dark. And you know what happens when you walk in the dark? You could stub your toe. You could, you could fall off a cliff. You could run into a tree. It's dark. It's dark. But now here's how Romans 8 changes the imagery. Do you like surprises? There's, there's a series of videos online. You can watch them on YouTube. I have, I'm a glutton for these things. Um, the title will come up on the YouTube video, Parents Surprise Son with a Puppy. If that's the title of your video, I am going to watch it, okay? I just, I just can't help it. It's a sickness. So picture it here. Mom and dad pull in the driveway, and what do they have in their car but a puppy? Oh, it's a puppy. Puppy. So mom goes in the house, dad stays outside with the puppy, and mom gets little Billy. Billy, come here, Billy. Not like the dog, that's how you call a dog, isn't it? Billy, <laughs> good boy, no, no. So he's, Billy, right, come here. What? No, come here. What? I've got a surprise for you, Billy. Close your eyes. Mom, do I have to? Yes, 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 just close your In fact, put your hand, cl- cover your eyes. And we're going to walk outside. Mom, I'm going to run into something. No, I'm here. I'm with you. I'll walk with you. We're going to go outside. So Billy covers his eyes. He cheats a little. His mother tells him not to. And he walks along. And um, uh, she says, oh, wait, wait. Here, turn. One of your toys is on the floor that you should have picked up. Go, go turn around this way. And, 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 oh, there's a step. Step. Billy's not very trusting of his mother with his eyes closed when he's walking, so he wobbles a little bit on the steps. But they, but they, 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 they make it outside, and they walk along the sidewalk, and, and at the precise moment, mom and dad say, open your eyes. Surprise! And Billy sees his dog, his new dog. Is this for me? Yes, it's for you. And Billy takes the dog and he cries tears of joy. And I'm watching these videos. So do I. <laughs> Look at the surprise. It's wonderful. Now, follow me. Ecclesiastes 6 and 7. We're walking in the dark. God is sovereign. In Romans 8, we're still walking in the dark. But God is with us all along the way. We stumble, we bumble, He leads us in strange places, we hear scary sounds. He even takes us through the valley of the shadow of death. Can you believe that? But He's there. He's there. And someday God is going to say, Open your eyes. 
open your eyes. Look what I have for you. And you open your eyes and you say, is this for me? Is this, Lord Jesus, what you have prepared for me? I can't believe it. Will you collapse into tears of joy at that moment? See, we're walking in the dark, brothers and sisters. This world is dark. It's full of chaos and pain and grief. Sometimes we feel that so keenly. And, and we're not as certain as we want to be that God is near. But he is. And we're waiting for that moment. The proof of it is that the Lord Jesus has come and died for us. We're waiting for that moment when God says, Open your eyes and your eyes will be opened like they have never been opened before. It will be as if you can see for the first time ever. Can you follow God in the dark under those circumstances? In light of the promises that he has made for us and what we expect him to give, it's true because of what he has done for us already through his great son. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and uh, we confess that we are sometimes like the teacher, overwhelmed and discouraged by how dark the world is and how we can't put the pieces together of your sovereign control in this chaotic world. But Lord, we turn to you still because we believe, you have called us to believe, that you are a God who is faithful, full of kindness. Lord, I pray that you would move us forth to follow you because of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. You have called us to yourself. You have redeemed us through your Son. You have, by your Spirit, opened our eyes so that we can see his beauty. Now in the darkness of this world, Take us forward, we pray. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with us. Your goodness and your mercy will follow us all the days of our lives and will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Grant us joy and contentment and peace in that truth this week, we pray. And we ask these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.